Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Bully Pew Podcast brought to you by Protestia.com and all the troublemakers therein, including the, I guess maybe the biggest troublemaker, I don't know, one of the troublemakers that is going to bring you this podcast right now. I am David Morrill and you are riding home with me on the evening of... Uh, what is today's date? The 9th of February, 2023. And <clears throat> talking about the the latest and greatest in what is going on in the world of evangelicalism from hopefully a dispositionally masculine perspective. Now, why do I say it that way? Because it has been made very clear to me and I think to a lot of other believers out there, uh, whether they are men or women, that there is, and this is biblically obvious as well, but there is a difference between men and women that goes beyond mere biology. And the, the ironic part is we are all in the midst of a cultural struggle to um, solidify the biological component of gender of men and women, the idea that if you are born a man, you're a man, and if you're born a woman, you're a woman, and we can verify this uh, very simply by by simple biology and genetics. It's not that complicated, but there's also a different component to this, I think, with regard to what the Bible teaches and what what creation and nature itself indicates about men and women in terms of their roles and their dispositions and uh, the, the, the traits that are both, I think, logically considered masculine versus feminine traits, but also um, traits that we can back up biblically in terms of what the Bible says about gender roles in the family, in the church, in even society at large. And of course, our society in in Western culture at this point is highly egalitarian, and I would argue in many ways that's not um, necessarily a problem. Uh, it's not necessarily a something that uh, we have to try to rid ourselves of um, in society at large. Although there are general equity components to how um, the Bible indicates men and women are designed to flourish and operate. Um, versus one another and with one another that have value when understood even in society at large. And especially, I'm going to you know, really, I guess, point the finger and target um, institutional uh, churches at this point and the seeming lack of masculinity that is, you know, just, I guess, become part of church culture in general. Part of, part of church culture in general has become this de-emphasis or devaluing of traditionally masculine traits and replacement with uh, traditionally feminine traits, um, even within male leadership in churches. And this has just become something that we've all gotten used to. Um, I know that I call this podcast the Bully Pew Podcast, and I've tried to make it clear over the uh, the first few episodes that that is a, a play on words of the bully pulpit. Um, but I find myself more and more inclined to, uh, I don't know, take take a stance of bullying from the pews in the in the the way that we all use the word now, and point the finger at a lot of evangelical pastors that simply um, 
lack the courage or the desire or the inclination to display um, masculine disposition in what they do. And by this, I mean there is a component to masculinity that is principled to the point of being unmoving in the face of any amount of opposition, even to the point of um, paying the price for that, whether institutionally or physically or whatever it happens to be. Um, There's something about men who stand up and say, I don't care if all of you oppose me, I'm right about this, and I'm standing for what what I know to be right. Uh, that that is a that is a major component to masculinity. It's what make what part of what makes men um, designed for warfare, um, both both physically and ideologically, um, makes us designed for warfare. And you know we're we're designed to to take the heat, so to speak, and take the arrows for. Uh, fights and battles and things we find ourselves in that is a very that is a very masculine thing and I don't know if it's because Western culture since basically since the end of World War II in America has largely not had to wrestle with this on an on a you know widespread cultural scale and obviously I know that we have fought wars and we have had warriors and and things like this since World War II but it hasn't been as um, universal um, in terms of its reach and its impact. Even if we if we you know talk about Korea or the Vietnam War, Cold War, the Gulf War. I mean, go down the list. It hasn't been the everybody's involved in this um, scope that World War II was, and a lot of post World War II was Western societies, including America, being basically blessed with material wealth to the point of excess and exponentially increasing creature comforts and really not having to fight I mean so little fighting was necessary um, on a on a cultural scale that men became just very soft and not not necessarily soft in terms of their strength or in terms of you know kind of being naturally male and interested in the stuff that men are interested in but soft dispositionally to the point where it it became a thing in the institutional church for pastors and vocational ministers and the professional clergy class if you want to call it that to advance themselves um, not by being direct and plain spoken and immovable and willing to um, you know be, preach the truth to a to a world or a congregation or, or listeners in any way that would disapprove of them or um, attack them in any way or stand up strong opposition um, that that didn't become the thing the thing became men men who be who were pastors were the ones that were and the most successful quote unquote were the ones who were best able to operate within um, spheres that were largely especially lately largely female dominated or dominated by by um, feminine feminine characteristics and there, there's a book there's a book uh, called why men hate going to church that I think is worth reading for anybody curious about this phenomenon for for you men in churches that are looking around and you see it but you can't quite put your finger on where it came from what's causing it um, you find yourself keeping your head down and trying not to 
not to speak out too much um, in terms of things that just they they sort of um, prick your masculine conscience uh, the wrong direction. <laughs> they 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 bother you and and you don't want to cause a stir by indicating that they bother you and you may not even be sure why they bother you and so you feel like you would be um, stirring things up unnecessarily. But you know something's wrong. You know you know something is is at issue. Um, you know it 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 bothers you or it annoys you when. Um, one of the pastors at your church is crying in front of everybody or when they seem to uh, wink wink at the women in the church and make you know tongue-in-cheek make men look like dum-dums or when they 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 talk about male things like I like hunting and sports and 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 all the and all these other sort of things with kind of a a wink and a nod like well that's just how we are men are just simple creatures that's how we are it's it's you know, th- there's a reason that that's going on. Um, and this this book, Why Men Hate Going to Church, is a lot of the prescriptions in the book I disagree with. A lot of them I think are far too pragmatic, far too um, not biblically focused per se. But the problem is is rightly identified that um, even even in the most um, culturally conservative churches, even in um, the most culturally leaning evangelical churches, and mostly these are Baptist churches, these are even non-denominational churches, even some of the seeker-friendly churches tend to be more conservative in terms of their um, their culture. And even in those churches, by and large, the church tends to be operated by women. Tends A lot of the day-to-day um, um, and the, the, the churning of the butter, for lack of a better way to say it, the day-to-day um, turning of the gears is being done by women. Obviously, in mainline denominations, um, they crossed that threshold a long time ago, and now everybody in there is a woman. Even even biological men are pretty much dispositionally women. Not that I'm supporting transgenderism here, but you get my point. It's a bunch of sissy, s- sissy men and women that run the place. Um, but even in the most conservative of churches, it tends to still be um, a majority of uh, attendees on a given Sunday are women. And a lot of the day-to-day during the week, especially all the programs and things, are, are being run by women. Now, what, what has caused this? Well, partially it's been caused by um, churches becoming not just a, an invisible uh, you know, body of believers or the, what we call the invisible church, a gathering of, of Christians that, that they gather on Sunday, become the visible church, and then go live that out uh, during the week in the rest of life. The church, a lot of churches have become 24-7 professional organizations. They have programs and um, every, every ministry under the sun, and there's, there's um, you know, addict recovery programs and there's bible studies every day of the week and there's there's um you know helps ministries and there's children's ministries and there's several youth groups a week and there's uh you know media ministries i mean you name it right you know obviously you know missions ministries all over the place and not that there's anything wrong with any of those things inherently at all but that's a lot of work under the the institutional banner of the church and men by and large as this was starting to um, become the case in Western evangelicalism, men were still going to work. Men, men still had their, their nine to five jobs to do. They couldn't be at the church in the middle of the day on a weekday most of the time, but a lot of women could. And so because of that, a lot of the day to day started being um, being done by women. 
And now we have a, a situation where in evangelicalism, the the churches are they're they're headed by men who are at least at least figureheads, if not if not um, you know heads of the organization operationally. So there's men at the top, but a lot of the the, the work is all being done by women, and the men that tend to succeed the best in those kind of environments are the ones that best um, circumnavigate. My, might be the wrong word for it, but they best display feminine characteristics. They 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 best display um, emotional sympathy, and they're very verbal and creative. And I, I realize the irony of of me telling you this as somebody who is a, a creative person himself, or at least tries to be. But a lot of men don't think that way, and and it's it's become a situation where the men that wind up at the, the head of churches, the men that wind up being elders and pastors of churches, are very often the ones who are um, the most feminine in terms of their, their general disposition. Um, they avoid conflict at all costs. They are they're people people, right? They, they relate to people and they, and they seek out uh, relationships over things. Um, most men naturally are, are object focused rather than people focused. This is a very this is a natural difference between men and women, um, and women tend to be a little bit more relationally focused. They tend to navigate a little bit more emotionally, where men tend to navigate a little bit more um, logically. And and you know those are generalizations, obviously, but the the answer for that in the church was always that we expected our men that led these institutions that were in authority and leadership positions to be, even if they were more creative or introspective or they displayed some of these things, to check that and balance that with their propensity to be direct with what they say, unapologetic about preaching the word, unapologetic about telling the truth. Um, Very much like the early church where men that were leading these organizations and, I mean, apostles and, 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 you know, the disciples and early church leaders were um, willing to courageously preach the truth into a culture that um, largely didn't want to hear it, persecuted them for, you know, they stoned and beaten the streets, crucified, um, all sorts of things happening to these men who just wouldn't budge. And we've never really experienced that in, in, in Western, Western Christianity. Not in our lifetimes, anyway. The closest that we've been is the last few years. The last few years where our churches have been shut down and our our religious expression has been under fire in a very direct and public way. And and yet still these institutions are led by um, the same men who capitulated the last couple years. The same men that tried to to, uh, people manage instead of proclaiming truth. Um, instead of instead of uh, standing unapologetically, no matter who liked it or didn't like it, no matter who tried to come against them, um, the men leading these institutions are still the ones that they've just been the the best at navigating the the murky, subjective, emotional waters of the modern culture. I don't say that with any sort of uh, um, pleasure. I think that's a very unfortunate situation. But the, the, the remaining part of what made pastors men to a large degree, a lot of modern pastors simply don't, they simply don't practice this behavior. They don't emulate the courage, the, the authenticity, the plain spoken, direct, um, unapologetic 
um, standing up for the truth that we would expect to see, that we would want to see, that I think is modeled in Scripture and by um, the early church, where we don't mince words, we don't move. We, we would stand in front of a whole room of people who were uh, not believing the truth and say, you're all wrong. Let God be true and every man a liar. You're all wrong, and I don't care what you think about me saying it. That is the masculine disposition. And instead, the modern pastor, the modern pastorate is plagued with men who are dispositionally soft. And they're compromisers, and they talk about feelings all the time. And there, yes, is there a limited place for that? There can be. But when that's your go-to... When, when you as a man look out uh, among the flock or out to the church or out to the culture or whatever, and for whatever reason, um, you're not able to control your emotional expression, you know, crying becomes a go-to, which happens all the time. I see it quite a bit. That, that becomes your go-to um, when the women in the church... Uh, never have a crossword to say about you whatsoever. They never think you're too harsh. They think that you're, they they think that you're uh, you're just right. They think that you're. I mean, you're basically you're a man, but you're really you're kind of a member of the girls' club, really, because you relate to them so well. You might have an issue. You might have a problem. Uh, you know, if you're serving in one of these churches as a pastor and you've said, hey, I'm a team pastor. I pastor with my wife. She's also a pastor. We're we're a pastor team. Well, I mean, that sounds really good to the culture, to the culture that has been, you know, pardon my uh, phraseology here, but baptized into feminism, baptized into um, egalitarianism in all facets of life. You know, they've been trained that men and women are only different by their biology and everything else is about the same. That, that That's what they've been taught. So trying to reach that world, it seems a lot easier to reach them if you can say, hey, we're also egalitarian here in this church, you know, yes, uh, oh, you know, this man is a pastor, but also his wife is a pastor too. They pastor together. Um, obviously, submission, biblical submission within that marriage is minimized if it's talked about at all. Um, but, but that does cause a problem because men are not created to be um, the submissive one in their marriage. They're created to be um, the leader and protector and the one that takes the arrows and the one that has the fights um, versus the wife designed to be um, the the uh, sort of opposite side of that in, in the sense that she is the one who, who is the, the nourishing one and the one that, that is um, best equipped for um, uh bringing up children and taking care of children and, 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 and making the home. And I know I'm probably getting a lot of women shutting this podcast off right now, listening to me go down this path, but I really don't care. Yeah. You know why? Because I'm a man and I don't care what you think. If I think I'm right, I think I'm right. Hey, by the way, I'm going to, uh, a little bit of a rabbit trail here. That is one of the dumbest objections for the record. Anybody can ever say to another person, you always think you're right. Have you ever heard that? You ever heard somebody say, you always think you're right. Um, yeah. And what's your point? What, what do you, do you think that I should think that I'm wrong? What would I do if I thought I was wrong? Well, I'd probably change my view on whatever it was so that I would be right again. The, you always think you're right is not an insult. That's actually a compliment. If someone says you always think you're right, 
take that as the compliment that it is. Okay, that means I'm being consistent in my beliefs and thoughts and my behavior and speech. Those things are remaining consistent. It's the person that says, well, I don't know if I'm right about that. I might be wrong. I might be wrong about it. Well, okay, do, do you not have a responsibility to figure out if you're wrong and then correct it? Or you're just, you're just good going through life pontificating on something that you're not sure about? That's, that, that's a very um, uh, unmasculine thing to do. <laughs> to, to, I mean, and, and, and that kind of indecision, that kind of, that kind of position or stance of, well, I don't know, and maybe, and, you know, it might be this, and it might say that the Bible might say this over here. I'm, I'm really not sure. Um, that gets people killed. That gets people killed in, in, you know, actual warfare, but also in terms of spiritual warfare. Um, God's word is designed to be read and understood, not to be sort of, well, I don't know, maybe it's possible. It's possible. It's like that. Um, but yeah, I, I, I believe that I'm right about this idea of the roles of men and women within the family and in the church and society at large, because it's consistent with what the Bible teaches. And it is, it is through understanding the passages of the Bible in context of one another and in response to one another that we, that we realize this is true. Not to mention the fact that it is naturally very obvious. It is naturally very obvious. Um, I explained this to a friend of mine a while ago um, at church when she was uh, sort of challenging this notion. I said, "Look, men are the the ones in a, the you know the husbands in a marriage, or, or men w- even within society at large, are the ones who are uh, equipped by creation to have battles over ideas." To, to win arguments over ideas and, and whatnot. And she's like, well, women can do that too. I said, yes. But technically speaking, a battle over ideas, certainly core ideas of uh, religion and, and, and politics and society at large and all of these things, historically speaking, have often, often ended up um, in physical violence. And not just, I'm not talking about just, you know, hey, you get in an argument you know, with somebody and it comes to blows or something like that. I'm also talking about the idea that religious, um, religious beliefs and political beliefs and cultural, um, clashes and things like that, um, end up in war. Historically speaking, this happens a lot, right? Um, and women are not designed to go to war. It's simple. It's a, it's a simple fact. Women are not designed to go to war. And so for them to, to take the lead on an, an, an ideological or religious argument, they're not, they're not designed for that either because they're not ready for the, the potential follow-up, the potential escalation they're not equipped for. So a woman having um, an argument over doctrine and theology on a consequential level, if it escalates beyond mere words, um, she would have to go get a man to escalate it for her. Now this this is this is important to understand because in the case of churches where where they're saying well the the husband and wife are a pastor team well pastors elders in the church that is a position that um, biblically speaking requires spiritual submission by um, members of that church there is a spiritual authority involved in pastoring a church and it's a high responsibility 
But that is not a responsibility that the Bible intends for women whatsoever. And so you wonder sometimes why real men, the men that are actually willing to stand up and fight the cultural decay and the doctrinal decay and be the real warriors of the church, don't want any part of churches, um, they're not willing to submit to your wife pastor. That's why. And they, they shouldn't. In fact, they would be sinning against their own family by doing that, sinning, sinning against God because he directly forbids that in Scripture um, to, to, to take that kind of a stance. And honestly, a, a, a church that allows this, a church that allows, it's a husband and wife pastor team, um, in, or, or worse yet, just a, a women pastors in general, um, they, they are not only sinning against God by defying his word, they're sinning against the husband of this supposed woman pastor. Because they have now... Um, whether knowingly or not, inverted the spiritual uh, um, relationship within that marriage. So, as the Bible says that husbands are to love their wives, wives are to submit their husband to submit to their husbands. Um, how how is it possible for a man to submit or for for a man to spiritually lead his wife and his household um, in the manner that Scripture prescribes if she is the leader in the church? So what, like they get to the church and then he spiritually submits to her within that context and then they get home and, and flip it the other way? It doesn't make any sense. There is no possible way that you can uh, do that kind of damage to what God has designed for the church without doing similar damage in the home um, of the woman that you've um, made a, a quote-unquote pastor of the church. There's no way. And, and I think that there's, there's some danger here, even when it comes to churches that say, well, you know, she's not a pastor, but she's, she's on the staff or she's a ministry leader in the church in some way. Um, and I mean, is, is it difficult for that woman? I imagine it would be to rightly submit to her husband spiritually within the, within the marriage, within the family context if she is very clearly the spiritual uh, superior, so to speak, so to speak, within the church. You know, that that's a pretty challenging thing. And we don't see, I mean, this is, we don't see scripturally any, any um, office, any, any biblical office for the church except for elder and deacon. Those are the two that we see actually prescribed in scripture. There's no prescription for, um, you know, children's minister or, you know, youth pastor or something like this. I mean, there's, there's a lot of, uh, there, there, there's a lot of breadth that churches have taken it upon themselves to exercise in this regard. A lot of license that they have taken for themselves to define ministry roles outside of those that the Bible actually prescribes for the, for the, uh, visible church. And again, that creates a lot of potential, um, situations for for uh, conflict and problems, and yeah, it's 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 something that is it, it's been around so long. It's been around so long that I mean, you know, guys that are my age, guys that are um, just north of forty, we've never been in churches that haven't had this this going on to some degree. Churches that haven't been wrestling with um, how can we how can we sort of not stand uh, too firmly opposed to the egalitarianism of the world around us 
you know, we don't want to seem like a bunch of crazy fundamentalist fuddy-duddies, supposedly. Even even though, you know, the older I get, the more I'm like, I think I'm okay with that. I think I'm okay with being considered a fundamentalist fuddy-duddy versus what I see churches doing nowadays, which is more or less um, synchronizing to the culture as much as they possibly can. Um, the uh, A situation that, that uh, you know, came up very recently after the uh, President Joe Biden's State of the Union address was we, we saw on on Twitter Brent Leatherwood, the head of the, the the president of the ERLC, he was the interim president, and I think he was he had other positions at the ERLC before he replaced um, replaced the outgoing and now Anglican, I guess, former Southern Baptist Russell Moore, who's now the, the editor in chief at Christianity Astray. Um, Brent Leatherwood gets on a Twitter and basically claims some sort of, I guess, victory for the pro-life cause because Joe Biden didn't spend very much time on abortion during the State of the Union. He spent more time on other stuff. And he took that as a sign to say, well, I guess they don't think abortion's a good issue for the Democrats anymore, so they're not going to they're not going to talk about it. So, you know, obviously we're making we're making uh, um, inroads here. And he com- he complimented. He was thankful for all sorts of other things that Biden said. Th- I mean, you know, generic things like he's he's, uh, you know, thankful that he talked about uh, policies to help families like, you know, you realize for us for a. A Democrat, for a liberal, a socialist, Marxist, like Biden is, and his, his administration is, his view of what is good for families and yours are wildly different from one another. His view of what's good for families from a federal government perspective involves taking from one group to give to another, income redistribution, more top-down government control. That's not something to be thankful for, you moron. That's what I'm, I'm thinking when I'm reading this. And what I'm realizing is that, is that these men are institutionalists first and foremost. Their primary goal is to maintain their positions and their influence within um, institutions, these man-made, man-made, quote-unquote, Christian institutions. They're not men in a dispositional sense because men who, with principle don't do that. Men simply speak the truth and let the chips fall where they may. And Christian men especially speak the truth knowing that the Spirit of God is at work. These are spiritual battles we are fighting. They're not, you know, they're, they're not uh, fights primarily over physical things or material things or institutions. It's, it's a spiritual battle for the, um, for the souls of lost men and women. And because the spirit is the primary actor in all of that, it is never our job to decide, uh, well, we need to manipulate this or we need to just, just bring this in slowly or sort of soft sell this and, and whatnot. And yet that is what all of these guys do. That, that has become, that is dogma to modern evangelicalism. That is, um, it's something that is just accepted without question. This idea that our service to God and, and for his kingdom in the gospel ministry is primarily even about how do we, uh, how do we um, work with the culture? How do we um, massage the message in order to, in order to have influence? You got, you got guys like uh, Tim Keller talking about this idea of pre-evangelism, like, like, well, people aren't even, they're, they're not even responsive to have a conversation about Jesus until you soften them up first. That's not, of course, that's not biblical. 
The Bible does not speak about some sort of pre-evangelism or somehow that hearts won't be receptive to the gospel because, well, I mean, you didn't talk about their favorite thing first. You didn't remind them that Jesus really is all about them before you delivered the, the hard news, the difficult news that um, they're lost in, in their sin and going to hell. You know, you, you can't just say that to people. You can't just say that to people. After all, I mean, if they're offended, how are they going to listen to the rest of what you have to say? This is, this is just taken as the way that it is. And the church, these churches that have become professionalized institutions with 800 different programs and, and goodies galore for anybody that would ever want to come to church. And I mean, we, I mean, I hear these pastors at the beginnings of church services basically spend five minutes um, telling the people of the church how much they love them, and that it's all about them, and, and, and the church exists for you and to serve you. And, to, and they may not say it exactly that way, but that's exactly what they're saying. You know, come here and, and we love you and you'll, we'll give you affirmation and kind of everything you need. And you just got to remember that Jesus loves you and, and you know, you're okay right where you are. And there's, there's there, you know, they, they soft pedal it and they make it so casual that the to the casual observer or even to the Christian observer, there's nothing special going on here. This is a sales pitch. This is a sales pitch you're listening to. This is in, as opposed to the churches of old where people would come in and be like, there's something a little weird going on here. This is a little different. Why, why, why are they so focused on uh, worshiping God and, and these kind of things? I mean, don't, don't they know that if, if they don't play the songs I want or have things styled the way I want or make it interesting for me, um, that I'll just go to another church that will? You know, so these churches become become um, businesses competing against one one another for customers, and they they all do it. it like I said, I, I haven't lived in an era where that wasn't at least part of the equation, if not the primary part of the equation. And I don't see any signs of that getting better, unfortunately. And to a lot of these churches, I mean. You take Andy Stanley's North Point Church as as an example of this. They're not concerned about um, the spiritual state of anybody in there, whether they're actually saved or not. Because if if you were if you thought that your your congregation there was actually saved, you wouldn't have to hesitate to preach the truth. You wouldn't pull it back. You pull it back because you know your congregations are full of lost people, and your goal is not necessarily to preach the, the um, hard-to-accept and offensive truth of the gospel for the sake of the work of the Spirit, that's not their goal. Their goal is to say, how can I keep these people in here? How can I keep make them part of the club? I mean, they overtly admit this at this point, these kind of churches, including North Point Church, ba- basically saying things like, it's, you know, we want you to come here and feel like you can belong before you have to believe. That's what they say. They'll say that belong before you believe. I mean, it's literally 180 degrees from the truth that you belong because you believe. This is a gathering of regenerate, um, um, saved people, adopted children of the Almighty. And yes, of course, we would want you to be part of this, um, but you don't get to be part of the body of Christ until you're part of the body of Christ. The body of Christ is not made up of lost people. It's made up of saved people. And how do we, to the best of our ability, confirm that you're a saved person? We preach the scripture unapologetically. We look for the fruit. We ask you what you believe. We expect you to know. 
it's 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 not difficult here to figure this out unless again your goal is to try to just fill the place with bodies and involve bodies that will will take advantage of your programs and they'll serve and they'll give money and do all those things all of these um these good works these fruits of the spirit um but they forget about the primary fruit of the spirit which is where is your faith is your faith in the real jesus do you believe that the word of God is what it says it is? Do you believe that it's true, that it's infallible, that it's sufficient? You know, what, what do you believe about um, how seriously do you take what the Bible teaches about sin? Does it matter to you? You know, does it matter? Does what you believe about Christ matter to you? These churches, they, they don't ask these things. Instead, they, they categorize their church as, well, this is a, this is a place to, to have questions. This is a place to challenge, challenge what you think you believe. Like, no, we challenge what the world believes. We don't deconstruct Christianity from the inside as long as people are willing to come to the church. And when you say something like, this is the place you come to belong um, and then believe, um, you don't know what church is. You don't know what church is. Why? If I could belong and I could get all of the emotional and relational um, benefits of um, being part of the church without having to actually um, be saved, without having to actually come to Christ and, um, and turn from my sin and repent. Why, why would I turn from my sin and repent? You're giving me all the stuff that I want already. You mean that I can come here and kind of slow walk and sort of, you know, more or less believe whatever I want and still belong, well, why would I change? This is the this is the the fallacy, the core of the fallacy with felt needs um, uh, Christianity, with felt needs seeker sensitivity. This idea that in order to reach you for Christ, supposedly, we're basically going to tell you what you want to hear, and we're going to give you stuff, and we're going to make our sermons about taking care of your worldly problems. We're, we're going to try to give you the material and um, temporal benefits, the general equity benefits of being a Christian before you're a Christian. And um, in the process, of course, we don't present you with your the peril that you're in right now. You know, you, I mean, you might die tomorrow, and if you, if you do, of course, you're going to hell. We're not going to present you with that. Instead, we're going to lure you in with goodies. On the hopes, supposedly, that if we lure you in uh, with enough goodies, uh, maybe you'll believe in Jesus at some point. Now, we're not going to really challenge you on what it, what it even means to believe in Jesus. We're not going to do that. Um, because then you might leave the club. You might go to another club that is less challenging. You know, you, Obviously, shoppers and people that are looking for products and things, and church has become very much a spiritual product, um, they're going to look for the best deal. So they're, they're going to look for the deal that gives them the most of what they want, and they have to give up the least of what they have, just like any other purchase. They're going to go to the store that gives them uh, what they want for the lowest price or for the same price gives them something better. Any normal consumer decision, this is the dynamic that takes place. So if your church uh, is unwilling to give give this person what they want um, and 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 uh, ask as little of them as, as possible in terms of, hey, you know, we, you can't be a part of this church unless you're a regenerate Christian. It, 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 there's going to be a church that, that doesn't ask that of them, and that's where they're going to go instead. And that, that's unfortunately the dynamic that we see uh, for ourselves in the, 
modern evangelicalism. I, I see no signs of this abating. Um, yeah, we're going to be, you know, monitoring this, this, the ERLC thing. I mean, Bart Barber, he liked me, he liked the tweet and he retweeted it and then, and then tried to defend himself and accuse Megan Basham of the Daily Wire, um, of being a poor journalist because she asked him as a Southern Baptist, you know, she's a, she, she, a member of a Southern Baptist church, asked him things, um, you know, in that context. And he accused her of poor journalism, like a moron. It's not journalism, dumb dumb. I digress. We, 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 uh, yeah, around here at Protestia, you know what we think of Bart Barber, and we provide the receipts. So, anyway, thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the Bully Pew Podcast. Stay tuned to Protestia.com for all the latest. Um, you can subscribe to this podcast, I believe, by going to Protestia.com, clicking on the live uh, and podcast link, and then, um, uh, you know, using the RSS feed in your favorite podcatcher. I, th- I think it's on Apple and Spotify and things at this point. But either way, we're going to keep putting them out. And, of course, they air on Protestia Live. Uh, and now it's at uh, 2 p.m., I believe it is. It should be 2 p.m. Mountain Time on Protestia Live. Check the schedule. I don't remember exactly what it is. And you can always pick it up there um, and, and listen with us. And, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, I'll catch you next time. Um, as always, I don't say this really at the end of this podcast, but I'm going to say it anyway. Semper Reformanda.